Hi, this is John Urhand, and welcome to the first episode of LaserCast, a program devoted to all things LaserDisc, from the history, to the technology, to the impact on modern home video. We cover it all here. Now, let's begin by talking about what exactly a LaserDisc is. Let's pretend for a moment that we're not home theater enthusiasts, home video enthusiasts. Let's pretend that we're from the planet Mars. We might know what a, what a CD is, a compact disc is, a little tiny disc with the audio. But let's say that we've never seen an, a LaserDisc. We've, we've never seen it. What exactly is a LaserDisc? First of all, the name. Because over the years, the format has gone under a couple of different names. And that's because there, you know, over the years there have been a lot of companies involved in the creation, the production, the distribution, the marketing of LaserDisc. It, it, it originally started out under the, the boring name of Video Disc, and still it's generically known as a, as a Video Disc. Then it kind of began to be known as a, a DiscoVision Disc or a DiscoVision Video Disc. Then it began to be known under the title LaserVision. Uh, that was a big, you know, like marketing, branding the, the word uh, laser. You know, getting in there gets modern. It's, it's 80s, laser vision, you know, like laser tag or something like that. And eventually it kind of settled down to laser disc. Uh, laser disc, sometimes it's spelled D-I-S-K. Most of the time, D-I-S-C. Sometimes it's two words, laser disc with a capital L and a capital D. Sometimes it's one word, but with the still capital L and the capital D. Sometimes it's just the capital L. And sometimes it just goes by the initials, LD for short. But whatever you want to call it, LaserDisc was a pioneering format. It was the first mass-produced, widely available optical disc multimedia format. It actually predates the compact disc by a few years, even though the prototypes were coming out in the 70s. And I mean, the compact disc is like 1980. LaserDisc began commercial trials and was available in some test markets in 1978. The, The exciting thing about LaserDisc was that not only do you have audio, but you have video. You have the, the, the ability to watch movies on an optical disc format. What a what what an amazing futuristic world that we live in, you know. The laserdisc format is a 12-inch optical disc. A 12-inch two-sided optical disc to the to the casual observer it might look like a large CD, but it's thicker than a CD because it's actually two discs bonded or glued together. That's what comprised the the two sides of the LaserDisc, and it actually makes the LaserDisc more rigid. So the LaserDisc, uh, depending upon what format the LaserDisc is in, it can contain either 30 minutes or 60 minutes of audio and video per side. The uh, initial LaserDisc format was CAV, and that only carried 30 minutes of video per side. But it also allowed for multiple trick formats, uh, trick abilities, like you could still still frame, and you could slow motion, you could do all this amazing stuff 
with a kind of clarity that nobody else had, had seen. The big problem was a 90 to 120 minute movie is going to require multiple, multiple discs, a whole box of, of discs. They, they came up with the solution, CLV, which increased the capacity to 60 minutes of audio and video per side. So now a two hour movie can fit on one disc. And that became the major commercial format, the most widely released format of the Laserdisc. Though some Laserdiscs actually mixed it up. Like, uh, say you have a 90-minute movie, well, side one is going to be CLV, so it's going to be an hour, and then, say, side two will have uh, CAV, so you'll be able to do some of the tricks of the format on the second side. Two-sided, so you have to break up your movie experience. There has to be a little intermission, <laughs> you know, at the 30- or 60-minute mark. And many people saw that as, a, as the opportune time for a, a bathroom break. But uh, that's, you know, again, it's one of the, the idiosyncrasies of the format. Uh, the format was primarily geared toward movies, being able to watch uh, feature films or television programs or uh, television shows, music programs. It was a, 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 you know, fitness videos. There was a wide variety of Laserdiscs available, but it also found applications in business and education. Because, you know, remember the CAV format, uh, the CAV format allowed you to have about 54,000 still frames. You know, this is uh, before the era where you could pull up uh, a, a PDF, an Adobe PDF on a computer, uh, or have a, um, have a folder full, full of photos. You could have a, a, an entire manual, an entire catalog of products on one laser. could be able to kind of flip through them. Laserdisc did not have, uh, menu systems. Uh, this was before computers and advanced menu systems, but they did have kind of some primitive multimedia encoding, especially with CAV discs that allowed you to pause on a frame. You could, you could go to a, it had chapters and you could go to a specific chapter. The, the, uh, you, you can encode a frame to stop and then you could still frame through pages of pictures or text and you could see the kind of applications this could, this could have um, with uh, industry putting uh, some manuals uh, manuals for engineers uh, and automotive industry catalogs uh, jc pennies sears those types of things you could encode those uh, on a on a laser disc and put those laser discs in a showroom and have a, a very modern, spiffy multimedia presentation. Also with education, because you could have, uh, you know, full frame, uh, full motion video and stills. You can imagine the, the kind of applications that could have just outside of uh, watching a, a movie. This all began before CD-ROM, before the internet, all of this, of this rich multimedia experience. It's, it's all, the DNA is all wrapped up in the story of Laserdisc.
Laserdisc has a very curious history. If you really want to know the full story about the history of Laserdisc, you have to go way, way back, way, way before 1978, when the first discs were test marketed in Atlanta, Georgia. Way, 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 way further back. <laughs> you have to go into the 60s, into the 1950s, actually into the 40s. You have to go way back to World War II and uh, the beginnings of actually uh, recorded media itself, of uh, audio recording, of magnetic recording specifically. Because uh, magnetic recording, uh, there were some experimentations going on with magnetic recording in the late 1800s. There were some people in Europe, some people in the United States, experimenting on recording actually on wire, wire recordings, on a piece of wire, magnetizing a piece of wire. You can still do experiments and magnetize a piece of wire and, and uh, get a, a voice out of it, record a voice, barely record a voice, because the fidelity of wire recordings, uh, it, it had no application outside of like dictation and other things. The the um, the fidelity was was horrible, and there were a number of uh, German technicians and uh, scientists, inventors, who took the wire recording technology. And they expanded upon it. Uh, they developed this new type of recording technology. Instead of a wire, it used ferric oxide powder, kind of a rust powder, a metallic powder. Initially, the powder was spread over a, a roll of paper. But then they developed a kind of a, a plastic sheet, a kind of a plastic tape. And this is the birthplace of the first audio tape. Uh, this audio tape was used by the Germans, and the Allies didn't quite know what was going on. They they knew that the, that uh, Germany possessed this kind of advanced recording technology. This this German company called AEG developed uh, this groundbreaking reel to reel recorder, and they would use it for broadcasting communiques on their radio, broadcasting uh, music. And after the war, uh, there was one uh, U.S. Army engineer, uh, his name was Jack Mullen. He got a, got a hold of one of these recorders, he brought it back to Hollywood, and he got a Hollywood name involved. He got Bing Crosby involved. Crosby, the, the famous crooner, star of stage and screen, star of films such as White Christmas, uh, a matinee idol, but, but also a very important figure 
in uh, the development of modern recording technologies, because uh, whether you say he's lazy, whether he was very busy, what, whatever you want, whatever you want to call it, uh, Bing Crosby did not want to record his radio show live. Uh, R- Bing Crosby was a was a radio star, and he was a radio star at the time when millions and millions of people every day. You know, followed him on the radio, listened to his shows, listened to the broadcast. But the thing is, it was, it was very primitive at that time. The technology, it all had to be done live. All of these radio programs had to be done live. If you can imagine how difficult it was to produce a radio program, all of the, the orchestras, the, the dozens and dozens of musicians, the voice talent, sound effects, it all had to be done and performed live you know and it was quite a hassle and uh and 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 Bing Crosby they say for whatever reason he was busy he was lazy he did not want to record his show live what he wanted to do is what the, the modern the modern thing is you record your show and you kind of time shift it and then you're able to to do other things you're able to to go out and do uh live shows you're able to uh you know lay on the couch or 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 whatever so jack mullen's uh, recording technology really interested bing crosby and so you could also you could also edit you know you could also edit you know which was 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 amazing i mean before audio uh audio tape you had shellac discs which were like vinyl like vinyl records but a shellac disc had such low fidelity uh, compared to an to an audio tape, they would do these demonstrations with audio tape, where they they put an audio recorder behind a a sheet, and people could not people could people were amazed they could they could not understand how this could not be a live performance, you know, it was it it, it wowed people, and the fact that he could also edit the show that he he could have a, a rhythm and a tightness it it was unlike. Anything and it, it just it just wowed everyone and it has spread throughout the industry. This audio tape technology spread throughout the industry. Other people started using it. Les Paul, a successful musician, the guitar was named after him. Uh, he was a successful uh, radio uh, radio celebrity, and he began to use this this audio recording technology and pioneered multi track recording where he could accompany himself and record himself on multiple tracks and so it was in the air multiple companies were coming out with this technology and people were pushing beyond just just recording audio people wanted to record video why not record picture as well as sound and so the technology kept moving ahead and there were all these companies coming into the fray like ampex and 3m and bing crosby and uh, Jack Mullen's company, you know, they saw the writing on the wall. They they realized, okay, you know, this isn't going to go very far for us. This is not going to be a profitable business. They're much larger entities. And so they they sold their company to 3M, and it became kind of an add-on company to 3M. And 3M had all of these projects, these little pet projects for recording technologies, and they call them Project A, B, C, and D. And Project D, Project D was the video disc. One of the primary figures 
in the history of Laserdisc, in the story of Laserdisc, is this character, David Paul Gregg. David Paul Gregg is a self-described, eccentric, eclectic, engineer, inventor, developer, and he claims to have had the idea for video disc in the 50s. Very early on, uh, he was he he worked with uh, with 3M and the Bing Crosby 3M offshoot, and uh, he he worked for a time there on the project. Uh, it became a, a pattern, though. He he left. There, there was there was all kinds of personality conflicts <laughs> with with David Paul Gregg. He would, um, you know, uh, he 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 was seen by some as more of an idea man. He had this uh, concept uh, of of a of a disc of a transparent disc where you could shoot an electron beam through it. Uh, you could uh, you could have a, 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 a glass master, and you could press or produce discs from this. Uh, so, the, you know, the fundamentals of a, of, a, of a video disc project kind of lay in David Paul Gregg's lap. So he worked for a period of time with 3M on the video disc project, and and some people claim that it, it, the, the video disc was not his invention, was not his baby, that there were other people working on it, that it was in the air at the time, you know, that there were multiple teams, multiple people, that it was not just this one guy. But according to David Paul Gregg, and it was his, it was his vision, it was his idea. He moves on from 3M to other companies. He eventually founds a company called Gauss electrophysics. And the primary product that Gauss Electrophysics uh, produces or is um, uh, founded to produce is high-speed tape duplication. High-speed tape duplication machines for the major recording industries, the need to pump out uh, cassette tapes. And so uh, the idea is to do that, to, to find a way to do uh, do high speed duplication. That that's the 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 primary product. The other product is uh, the video disc. It's his passion project, let's say. And he goes all over town. He goes to he courts all kinds of companies. He goes to Philips. He courts uh, Capitol Records, and he tries to get everyone to on board to 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 be excited to to finance this this product. Eventually, he lands in the lap of MCA, uh, Music Corporation of America, MCA, Lou Wasserman, and uh, he, he, he gets uh, an ear uh, at MCA. He, he finds a, a home. MCA has a back catalog with Universal. They have thousands and thousands of movies. And so the idea of reselling these movies on home video on a, on a round disc, just like a record. You know, MCA knows records. They know movies. So why not put it together in this, this format? David Paul Gregg started uh, patenting the, the, the video disc format uh, in the late 50s. Uh, there's some patents in like 58 and 60s, 62s, and the, the, the early patents. Uh, and the early kind of like white papers and what a video disc format could be. Around 1967, he sells those patents, he sells that technology to MCA, 
and they form this company, uh, DiscoVision, with the goal of actually producing a mass format optical disc and getting it out to the public. The birth of home video. Now, the format would evolve. I told you about David Paul Gregg's early conception of a video disc format, that it would be a transparent disc with electron beams transmitted through the disc and it involved fiber optics. It was a, it was a very complex uh, conception of a format. And eventually at DiscoVision, what they decided on was a, uh, a, a, it was, was not, uh, a, uh, transparent disc, but was a reflective disc. It was actually a, a floppy disc. You would lay it on what looked like kind of like a high tech turntable and the laser reader would kind of, s- kind of swing out like a stylus and uh, would uh, read the disc and there would be like a bearing of air it was very it was very high end very different from what eventually kind of uh, became the lasers format even though early lasers players you didn't slide the disc in it was like a, again like a record player you'd put the disc on and then you'd close the lid and you'd have the laser head but the early format was actually a a floppy disc and the uh, the engineers developed prototypes, and they actually developed uh, enough of a prototype to be able to show the Laserdisc format back in 1972. And who was one of the people that were that was uh, there for the the demo? But the company Philips. Philips. Uh, David Paul Gregg had actually uh, shown Philips. The, uh, the, his, his early uh, video disc, uh, he had shared, uh, some of his ideas about video disc. And Philips was actually developing their own video disc format right now. You know, I mean, it's like most things in industry, you know, uh, one guy has an idea and somehow everyone has ears and, uh, <laughs> then you have everybody and their brother developing a format. And that's kind of what the, the, uh, the home video gold rush kind of was in the early seventies. So Phillips saw the DiscoVision format and DiscoVision was a little farther on, uh, technologically than Philips. Philips, uh, actually, uh, they could only, uh, they only had glass masters, but, uh, DiscoVision by now was, was, had to develop the technology to actually press discs and they actually showed a movie from a pressed disc. So, uh, Philips decided to, to, uh, pay DiscoVision a visit and there was a period of cooperation, which they both agreed to, of collaboration, to collaborate on this new format. They didn't want a format war, number one, 
And also, there was another uh, giant, uh, there was another big, uh, <laughs> you know, 400-pound gorilla. It was RCA. RCA was also developing their own disc format. And it actually, it was not an optical disc format. It was a, a format that was kind of, that had a, a stylus and had, it was kind of like an evolution of uh, records. It was called Capacitance Electronic Disc, CED. Uh, it would eventually come to market many, many years uh, after LaserDisc, uh, even though it felt like a relic compared to the the modern uh, shiny LaserDisc. You know, CED was this, you know, uh, was this thing in a caddy. It was this black, like a uh, record disc that was read by a stylus, and it, the stylus could wear out. The disc, you know, could wear out, and. Um, and and also by this time, of course, we're we're moving away from from David Paul Gray's conception of an electron beam. Uh, now the engineers, uh, the architects of the of the what we really became the modern lasers format at DiscoVision had decided on a a laser, a a modern laser, a uh, gas laser. At that point, uh, later on, they would use solid state lasers but a gas laser to actually read the optical disc, the, the uh, reflective optical disc. Also, the collaboration with Philips produced the, the, the rigid disc concept, the idea of sandwiching two discs together, not having them be a floppy disc. A floppy disc was causing warpage in the disc and was causing all kinds of problems. So that was another thing that came out of Philips was a uh, a rigid disc bonded together, two discs bonded uh, together. So uh, production uh, on the LaserDisc continued. Uh, DiscoVision uh, set up a um, set up a, a pressing factory, the first laserdisc pressing factory ever. They set it up at a closed furniture factory in Carson, California. And again, these were this was these people were walking on the moon. This was the first uh, mass production of an optical disc. And there was some lack of of understanding about what that really took. I mean, these were people who were more used to producing vinyl records and that was kind of the 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 workflow and the 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 kind of the I think the the thought process of the early people involved in laserdisc was we can just press them like we press a, a vinyl record and even with a vinyl record there are certain tolerances there's a certain amount of uh, cleanliness that you have to get involved uh, of course, you know, in, in, a, in a vinyl pressing, you can have a noisy vinyl pressing. You can have vinyl pressing where all kind of gunk gets in the uh, in the grooves, and it's a and it can cause issues with the sound quality. Well, uh, producing an optical disc requires a kind of uh, accuracy, and it requires a clean room because I mean, a, a speck of dust can destroy part of an optical disc. So, you know, modern uh, optical disc factories have, you know, what are called a clean room uh, policy where you have uh, controlled ventilation, you have rooms that are uh, spotless, and you have people walking around in white spacesuits. Well, apparently, the, uh, the tolerances were a lot less stringent at the DiscoVision factory. 
And uh, it was a it was a problem which plagued DiscoVision right from the start with that factory is they would they would have uh, runs of of laser discs. Uh, they would press laser discs from a, a glass master, and uh, the the run would be like ninety five percent defective. And, uh, and it was just the, 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 uh, this was a problem which, which plagued the, the early prototypes. And then when it went into, to production, it was, uh, an awful ordeal. So the production of the Laserdisc, kind of, uh, the, the development of the Laserdisc, uh, continued throughout the 70s. And, you know, it was, he, the, the, the home video wars were beginning to heat up. You know, other companies were coming into the fold, and uh, there was the idea of, um, of of videotape. You know, Sony was developing this consumer videotape format that they were going to launch. Betamax. There was another company, Matsushita. There was other companies, Matsushita, JVC. They were developing this uh, rival format, VHS. And then right in the middle of it, you have uh, you know. You know, uh, RCA was releasing the CED Select Division, their own disc format. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of competition in the air. Uh, who's going to bring stuff to market first? You know, who's going to be first? And the tape-based formats were really, you know, some of the the, the first. They they beat out the disc format. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a race against time. Philips actually bought an American company. They, they bought Magnavox in order to just produce the Laserdisc players. Uh, and they had to, uh, they produced them in Europe and they had to ship them into the, into the U.S. So Laserdisc was launched in December 1978. It was launched in test markets. And the first test market was in Atlanta, Georgia, where a group of discs went on sale. DiscoVision and Magnavox, they held a press conference at the Regency Hotel in New York on December 13th, 1978. And then two days later, on December 15th, the DiscoVision discs and the Magnavox player, it was a Magnavox VH8000 player, they went on sale in three stores in Atlanta. Uh, they had uh, uh, they had set this um, goal of actually having 50 players available. And these, these players sold for $749. $749 in uh, 1978 dollars. Uh, only 25 were actually available. They sold out immediately. And from the beginning, people noticed issues. The poor QA was affecting the discs. Discs were being returned and re-returned. Uh, there was an issue with the Magnavox players being incompatible with with some of the discs the the first player that you you bought the first player that was available couldn't play uh, some of the some of the discs and the engineers had to develop modifications i mean this was uh, yeah, this, is, this is such um bleeding edge stuff nothing had had existed before you know this, this kind of optical disc format
Now, enter the fray a tiny, a tiny company known for uh, car stereo equipment primarily, uh, a Japanese company, Pioneer. Pioneer comes in the fray and DiscoVision brings them in in order to assist uh, producing the uh, the actual hardware players, the industrial equipment, the industrial players, because DiscoVision was going to have industrial applications, and they were wanting high-end industrial equipment. And Pioneer comes in. Pioneer, again, was not one of the big boys. The big boys, big Japanese companies were... Uh, you know, Sony, J- JVC, Masushita, these guys. Pioneer was, was, was a small player, but they start producing these, uh, these, this hardware, uh, lasers players in Japan. Uh, they go to the, to the California plant and they, they, uh, they start looking into it. They, they study the plant. They study what's going on and very slowly, they uh, put together the idea that they need their own pressing. They were, they were originally just going to do the hardware, but they build their own plant eventually in Japan, and they start pressing discs, and they're pressing very high-quality discs. And they they very, very quickly uh, outstrip uh, the, the Carson plant. You know, they're way higher quality. The players are, are much higher quality than the Magnavox players. And so the, the, the quality of, of Pioneer's craftsmanship keeps just, just keeps going up and up. At the same time, uh, there's another big company that kind of enters the fray, and it's IBM. Uh, around 1979, DiscoVision, again, uh, MCA is kind of losing faith in DiscoVision, and it's bring in IBM, bring in the, the boys in blue, the computer guys, the efficiency guys, to turn the, the Carson, California plant around. Cause again, the, 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 the QA issues, the, the poor quality of the discs, they're, you know, they're, they're killing the format, you know, and you've got all of these, you know, wolves at the door. You've got, uh, select division. You've got, uh, tape formats. You've got all of these guys, you know, fighting for a piece of, of what could be uh, this, this incredible pie is home video format the, 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 you know who's gonna who's gonna win is it gonna be tape or disc is it gonna be you know nobody quite uh, nobody quite knows uh, but uh, ibm's gonna help discovision and there was a, a a clash a culture clash you could say there's stories of uh, industrial espionage going on at the carson plant the 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 employees of the carson plant uh, kind of clashing with uh, the the style of 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 IBM uh, so that didn't quite uh, go well it didn't sit well with the employees of of the Carson plant and around 1981 discovision kind of finally falls out with MCA they run out of financing still having problems with the discs and uh, pioneer swoops in basically buys the plant, buys the rights to the format, essentially, and becomes, for the rest of the, of the, of the life of the format, pretty much throughout the 80s and 90s, Pioneer became the lifeblood 
of the of the format. They made some of the best laserdisc players. Uh, you know, Magna, even even Philips drops out uh, the the Magnavox players. They they just uh, they sell rebranded Pioneer players. And uh, so, you know, other companies kind of jump into the fray, and Sony made a few Laserdisc players. A few other other people made Laserdisc players, but Pioneer becomes the face of the Laserdisc or LaserVision format from here on in. So now that we know a little bit about the history of the format, let's kind of take a step back and uh, get into some of the the geekier, nuts and bolts aspects of the format. So it's an optical disc. We know that before, 12 inch, basically 12 inch. It's it's not actually exactly 12 inch, it's about like 11.8 inches. So it's, it's actually a little bit smaller than a 12 inch vinyl record. And uh, that was that was the predominant size, but they, as time went on, they actually produced these smaller, like eight-inch discs. It's kind of like you know you have a full-size uh, vinyl record, but then you have like forty-fives that just have one song, or you know like a, a you know a ten-inch you know album or something. Like that. You had the eight-inch albums, which were primarily for like music videos or uh, you know just like. Uh, uh, promo projects, uh, uh, catalogs, and and such like that. So you'd have the smaller decide, but the predominant size was the full twelve-inch disc. We'll call it twelve-inch euphemistically. Uh, it had uh, standard definition video, standard definition uh, composite video. It was not, this is one misconception of the Laserdisc format that it was all digital. It was a basically kind of a digital impression of an analog FM signal. Uh, you had these pits and lands that are read by a laser, and out of those pits and lands, you reconstruct an FM waveform, and out of that FM waveform, you decode a, you know, 425 line of uh, video signal. It was much better than VHS. VHS was about 240 lines. So 425 lines of one track of video. You can only have one track of video on a laser disc. Multiple tracks of audio, actually. The the initial laser disc format only basically had one stereo track, and it was called the we call it we'll call it today analog tracks. So it just it, it, you know combined in that FM signal, you had a stereo track running along with it. But the player could treat it like track one and track two. It could break up this stereo track into two mono tracks. You could play either one. The idea is, you know, you could have, uh, say you had a, a, an instructional video, you could have a commentary on one of the tracks and do stuff like that. You know, people were, were really thinking outside the box. Later on, as the format developed, and they began to retrofit things onto the format, uh, they, they found ways of, um, uh, increasing the fidelity of that track. They, they had this, um, kind of type of noise reduction called CX noise reduction. Uh, 
You'll see that logo on some Laser's players. CX noise reduction was actually used on vinyl records, but it was uh, all over. You know, pretty much every Laser's player had a button where you could enable CX noise reduction, and it was like Dolby noise reduction. It could it could increase the the fidelity and the quality of that analog audio, but. Uh, after a period of time here, the, the engineers were able to retrofit onto the Laserdisc format actual uh, CD quality, they called it CD quality audio, PCM audio tracks. Another stereo pair of audio tracks that would go along, straight along with the stereo analog tracks. So you had stereo analog and stereo PCM, stereo digital so you had, and you could add, and you could treat those, th- that pair of digital tracks, like uh, two separate tracks. So you had two stereo pairs, or a total of four tracks. And later on, later on in the uh, the nineties, well, stereo surround came came in, and Dolby surround. Dolby surround is a way of basically encoding uh, four tracks in two, into uh, from two tracks, a, a stereo track. You can basically encode a a center track and a rear track uh from using uh psychoacoustic um, uh, masking and, and audio basically kind of uh the sum of of the tracks and the difference of the tracks is the rear and the front channels so dolby stereo was a way of getting multiple tracks just from that digital uh track that wonderful digital audio track but in the uh, early 90s uh they they went something further and they developed DTS digital theater systems and Dolby's answer to DTS was AC3 this was multi-channel audio 5.1 tracks of discrete digital audio Dolby surround was not discrete but uh Dolby digital was and uh in the case of DTS DTS took over both of the uh, the the uh, the digital uh, stereo uh, uh, tracks on a laserdisc, and it it allowed you to have 5.1 tracks of audio. You had to have a DTS decoder, and you had to have a laserdisc player that would support it. You know all of the you know all of the audio kind of retrofits. You know again you know the you know after they retrofitted the digital audio, you know the original Gaz laserdisc. Uh, Gaz laser lasers player could not play those discs, and uh, you know again it, compatibility issues kind of arose. But DTS AC3 Dolby Digital was kind of like a, more of an everyman format. Dolby was a much larger studio than D- DTS had the 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 backing of uh, you know some important people in the industry like uh, uh, people like Spielberg who had had a stake a financial stake in DTS and really pushed D- DTS in theatrical. Uh, in the, the early 90s with Jurassic Park and uh, The Last Action Hero. and Well, Last Action Hero was actually Sony's version of, of DTS. It was SDDS. It was the, the, the multi-channel digital wars, uh, format wars were heating up. You know, there was SDDS, Dolby Digital, and uh, DTS. 
and uh, a lot of a lot of Spielberg uh, fanatics loved uh, DTS. DTS became kind of like the high end uh, fidelity. Uh, you know, the, the you you were uh, a different type of uh, high end home theater consumer if you like DTS. If you were AC three, AC three by the way only took up one one channel, one digital channel. So you could still have another mono channel with the commentary. Oh, I have to mention audio commentaries. There's a lot of special features on Laserdiscs, you know, still still galleries, uh, deleted scenes, trailers, all this type of stuff, and the advent of audio commentary. A director or a crew member or reviewer or critic, somebody talking along to the movie that 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 began uh, in the in the late eighties. The the first uh, laserdisc with a commentary track was King Kong from the Criterion Collection. Uh, I, again, we can go into we can go down a rabbit hole with the Criterion Collection and and talk about uh, all the wonderful things that they've they've done uh, over the years. But uh, again, uh, if you had AC three. You could uh, watch, uh, you know, a movie and have that little commentary track and have the. Well, I, I think I, I misspoke. Actually, with uh, Dolby Digital, it only took one of the analog tracks. It was able to encode it uh, in the analog track, so you had digital stereo, and then you had one analog track being being taken up. And then you had another analog track where you could have the commentary. Whereas DTS, DTS was kind of a, a hog. It was kind of as far as the, again, it was like the hi-fi, high-fidelity version of a multi-channel format that took up the digital tracks uh, on the disc. Now, the Laserdisc format really did not have a huge foothold in the, the U.S., in Japan, it was something different. In Japan, it was a huge format. The rental laser discs were everywhere. In fact, I have a few of them. I have uh, Wild Orchid and Reservoir Dogs on a, a rental copy of a disc. So there were all these technological advances which uh, uh, that retrofits onto the laser disc format, which flourished. In Japan, you know, Japan ga- being gadget obsessed, uh, that cliche, you know, whether that's true or, or not, really, they, uh, they retrofitted onto the Laserdisc format all kinds of things. They retrofitted this thing called CDG, which was like advanced subtitles, which they, which could, uh, it was a, it was a track of subtitles, which could show up. Uh, they, they, uh, shoved in, in, in the nineties, in the nineties, they had a video disc format called high vision, which was actually high definition video on Laserdisc. It required special encoders and the, 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 I mean, the transfers were, uh, you know, uh, you know, as opposed to what you can do in the, the mid, uh, you know, 2000s. It, it's, you know, nothing compares to the, the, the kind of high definition transfers that were being produced in the mid nineties. It was, it was still the early days of high definition, but in Japan, they were, they were getting them out there. They were getting it out there. Uh, they were even uh, doing. They had a series of uh, of discs which were squeezed. Basically, they were anamorphic discs. You now, this was this was a format which did not, uh, you know, really gain traction in, in home video until 
DVD introduced anamorphic formats. Well, in Japan, they were doing it with Laserdisc. And there actually were a couple of Laserdiscs that made their way into the U.S. They were in squeeze format, where if you had an early... this In the 90s, it was actually a tube widescreen television. The early widescreen televisions were actually tube televisions. They were CRTs. So if you had one of these early widescreen tube televisions you could actually get one of these squeezed laser discs and unsqueeze it using your television and have very early widescreen. So, lots of technical innovations, lots of things going on. Uh, throughout the 80s and the 90s, uh, uh, the, the laser disc was, was, you know, known as the, 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 you know, there was the upper crust, you know, the, the home theater enthusiast video format of choice. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to watch uh, VHS, you know? I mean, VHS had come a long way in quality. There was the the HQ, VHS HQ, which increased the quality to the level of Betamax, and VHS was able to retrofit stereo sound onto it. But there was not, there was nothing quite like the first time that you, you listened to your first you know, CD quality Laserdisc. You know, it was it, it, still it, it, incredible, even on a on a very, very austere setup of just just a stereo two channel stereo setup. Uh, you could tell the difference immediately after listening to buzzy distorted audio to to listen to crystal clear digital audio cd quality in quotes because it actually wasn't it wasn't exactly running at uh at 44.11 uh kilohertz it was uh, like 4400 so it was it was, it was a little bit of a a different uh, kilohertz than than uh, cd quality so but it was still some of those, some of those, um, laser discs, the, the stereo tracks and laser discs, people still lust after them. People still love them. So it was an enthusiast dream. But toward the mid nineties, the development of the DVD format, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall. You know, there was an evolution. Uh, you know, Laserdisc, you know, at, at its peak only had a couple million, a few million players in the U.S. It was a large amount. It was a large amount, uh, you know, of, of home theater enthusiasts and just average people who wanted a little bit of a higher quality, uh, and also people who wanted to buy movies. Because, you know, throughout the 80s and into the early 90s, uh, if you wanted to actually own your own movies, the retail prices of VHS were through the roof. 80, 90, 100 dollars. Laserdisc actually, because it was one company, it was one company controlling everything, Laserdisc prices were between $20 and $40, usually. For it was averaging 25, 29, 39, you know. 29, 39 basically were, were some of the, the main price points, unless you went to the people like the Criterion Collection boutique Laserdisc publishers would frequently price their discs a little bit higher. But for the most part, the studio titles were coming out of the gate at $29, you know? 
uh, on twenty nine dollars on on sale, and you know you could not buy the VHSs. You know, I remember movies like um, uh, The Nutty Professor, Pulp Fiction, Twister. These were big titles in the nineteen nineties. Uh, it was and in the nineteen nineties was just at the point when Laserdisc was peaking, when it was coming into its own. DVD arrived. And, uh, as I said, the writing was on the wall. Um, laser just kind of, uh, laser releases kind of slowly filtered out. The last laser disc release in the U.S. was the Martin Scorsese film Bringing Out the Dead. A couple more came out in the, uh, in, in Japan. And many of these later titles are now prized collectibles, movies like Bringing Out the Dead or The Phantom Menace, things that were, were coming out here in the late, late 90s and early 2000s. By 2001, the last titles were kind of filtering out. And uh, even by the, the, the mid-2000s, some of the, the last Laserdisc players were being produced you know, Japan, the stronghold of Laserdisc, was uh, still, you know, still producing them. You know, I mean, you know, uh, Japan, I mean, Pioneer, I mean, they were some of the, they were they were the pioneers of Laserdisc, you know, in, in an era when, you know, uh, you know, television screens were standard def and they were square, uh, you know, these Japanese companies were introducing letterboxing. You know, and that was uh, the idea of Japanese imports began to to come to to, to come to the head in the, in in the eighties. Especially if you were a fan of like if you loved widescreen and you wanted to see movies with you know widescreen scope anamorphic films the with the way they were meant to be seen with the black bars. You know, your your best bet was was uh, importing a, a laser disc, you know, of your of your favorite movie. You know, I believe Rambo: First Blood was a. I remember reading about that. That was a, a big title that people you know wanted to see the the full picture. Uh, if you were a horror movie fan, uh, a lot of the early uh, Italian horror films, like Lucio Fulci, there was a gigantic lush special edition of City of the Living Dead, which had multiple cuts of the film. You know, I mean, if you were a lover of movies, if you were a fan of movies, you know, the latest format was for you, and it felt, it felt, um, you know, lasers were heavy. They're heavy things. You know, they had the, they kind of had a heft to it. They had a weight to it. You know, people didn't let that go immediately, even though the, the, the quality of, of DVD was immediately apparent to me the first time I saw a demonstration, the first time I saw Goldeneye playing, uh, on a, a badly calibrated, uh, 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 television at, um, at, uh, at, um, Montgomery Ward, the now defunct department store Montgomery Ward. I knew it was over. I mean, I immediately was like, my jaw dropped. I'm like, my God, you know. Before then, I've been kind of a, you know, I've been a, a, a laser disc believer, you know. And there were people like, you know, the, the famous commentary track uh, of Chasing Amy, uh, released in the Criterion Collection laser disc, where, where, uh, <laughs> Kevin Smith says F laser disc, you know, and he's, he goes on, you know, he ha- has to throw a little jab and I threw jabs, you know, I threw, I said F laser disc in public. I really did. I went to Saturday matinee. I was like, F laser, but 
you know, the, the quality, uh, you know, was so apparent that, you know, eventually you had to kind of give it up, you know? And at the beginning of the 2000s, even at the beginning of the 2000s, you begin to see a resurgence in the format, a resurgence of people, basically young kids. And it's just like with vinyl records, you know, when something kind of goes out of vogue, you know, when uh, the certain part of town kind of uh, gets deserted, you know, before the gentrification, you know, it's cheap places for the kids to go in and get, get some, uh, you know, get some housing, you know, Laserdisc was just cheap, a cheap way to buy movies, you know. And buy really, you know, uh, just like a record, you know, and have a wonderful sleeve and have the wonderful packaging experience of a Laserdisc. People started doing that. The people there started buying Laserdiscs. And that's kind of where we're still at right now, you know. There's Laserdisc enthusiasts. There's, you know, like the Laserdisc Forever uh, Facebook page. There's all kinds of, you know, enthusiasts, you know, alt Alt.video.laserdisc, you know, back in the 90s used to be just this hotbed of activity. Now it's like kind of like a, you know, Wild West kind of like, you know, tumbleweeds are blowing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the Laserdisc community, people who are interested in the technology and the movies and watching movies in the highest quality format and home theater, home theater enthusiasts, that that spirit, the spirit of Laserdisc, still lives on to this day, really. And uh, you know, the, there's no new players, there's no new discs, but you can still watch the old stuff. And there's still all these bargains, you know. And the prices of movies will go up or down. Japanese Laserdisc used to be the hottest thing. Now you. Really, it, it's now it's um it's a buyer's market in in many cases. I mean, there are some titles that are extremely still exotic and difficult to find, but you know some some anime collectors and and things like that. Some really exclusive titles, but most laser discs, uh, most laser discs you buy you 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 almost pay as much uh, for the postage to get the laser disc as you do for the laser disc itself. So, but there's still some curios on laser discs. There's stuff that's not come out on DVD, stuff not out on Blu-ray, alternate cuts. As I said, wonderful packaging. So. There's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of, uh, life left in Laserdisc and the whole nostalgia of it, the whole kind of gee whiz futuristic factor. It's still, you know, you still bring a Laserdisc out in public and you start waving it around like a big shiny mirror and you look at it. You can, you can look at a Laserdisc and see light glint and reflect off it. You can, you can really study the grooves. You can study what it's made out of. Uh, really. It's it's a wonderful experience. So I hope you've enjoyed this little trip down memory lane, and I hope you'll come back for future discussions on the format. Now, I could not have produced this program without all of the incredible information on the Blam LD website. 
blamld.com. The website's been up for over 20 years right now, and it has a wealth of information about Laserdisc as a whole. Laserdisc frequently asked questions, the whole history about DiscoVision. On that website, it goes into excruciating detail, everything I've discussed in this program. So if you have any interest in Laserdisc, you need to check out blamld.com. If you have any comments, any corrections, <laughs> uh, anything that you, you're burning to tell me about Laserdisc, reach out to me. My email address is laserdiscpodcast at gmail.com. You can also search for me on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time, have a great day and keep on spinning those discs. <laughs>